You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Libertarian Country is one of the fastest growing and most popular liberty-themed apparel companies in the world. This American-based company was founded by two brothers out of Baltimore who had a vision to create an online store that offers fun, unique, and controversial political clothing and accessories. This five-star company offers the hottest shirts, hoodies, hats, and so much more. So check them out today. This is an independently-owned, liberty-loving business that basically gives you the exact type of apparel and paraphernalia that you've wanted anyway. You just didn't know you wanted it now. Every purchase you make using the link in the show notes allows a small part of your purchase to come back and support the show. So go on, go grab some awesome libertarian country swag using that link in the show notes. You'll thank me later. Okay, so hear me out. You like getting cash back for the normal stuff you buy throughout your week, right? Of course you do. Check out the Dosh app. That's D-O-S-H, Dosh. Dosh is available at the App Store and Google Play Store and securely connects to your credit or debit card. From there, every time you use those cards, Dosh searches for available offers. Once it finds one, Dosh automatically redeems the offer and converts it into cold, hard cash. Muchos dineros, brother. Then deposits that directly into your Dosh wallet. Click the link to download and join Dosh today and get $5 just for joining. This link is exclusively in the show notes of this episode. So, show notes, special link, Dosh, $5 cash. Start on the path to quick and easy cash back on the things you love today. yourself. You're on the run with Remzo W. Martinez. <laughs> that voice at the beginning always freaks me out. It's kind of like Siri, but way more serious. Yeah. All yeah. right. So Gabrielle Hoffman, now a town hall columnist. You were, you were there a few years ago and now you're back, right? I was. I was in a more informal capacity, and now I'm signed on as a freelance columnist. So it's really cool to be back. And I just come there from spending about four years at the Resurgent as their DC correspondent on top of my consulting business. So a lot of moving parts, a lot of exciting things. So it's been good to be back. We've had some really positive responses to my columns there. So I'm really excited to bring that bent over to Town Hall. So basically, you're still working way more than 40 hours a week. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know if I'm working 40 hours a week, but I'm keeping busy. I, I, don't, I don't know about you, but ever since everybody was forced to start working from home and now we're in like, I don't know, the, the days are hitting triple digits now. I, I feel oh, that even though I'm, you know, I'm, I'm still working my regular job, I've had to work more so than I would if I was typically in the office and recently, because of some you know financial stuff at work, I've had to pick up some extra jobs. So it went from the beginning of 2020 being, oh my gosh, this is so nice. I get all my benefits. I get you know just to work 40 hours instead of the crazy hours I used to work, and everything's going to be freaking awesome. To now, why do I feel like I'm more stressed at home than ever before? <laughs> yeah, I mean. Maybe for me, I, I've approached it a little differently because 
I've been working from home for about four years, but it's certainly a more extensive type of work setting that I'd like because you're kind of confined. And as you know, here in Northern Virginia, we've been on lockdown for over two months now, and it's getting pretty excessive. Uh, but it wasn't really a hard adjustment to make. However, it, it is I mean, a little excessive. Be, yeah, I mean, it used to be at least if you're working from home, you can go out, you can go meet clients, yeah. you could go work at like a to Panera. DC, yeah, like you were, even though you, yeah, I mean, even though you were working from home, you were still like not stuck in your house all day. Exactly. Yeah, we, we had more freedom to move. Uh, and I think Friday we may be seeing more of it, but it's interesting what stipulations we have <laughs> with our uh, freedom being given back to us. But uh, it, it's interesting, it's, to say the least. But yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's small degrees. I, I wanted to bring you on to talk about this because now since I've been getting really like cabin feverish, I'm taking more into account <laughs> the things I want to do. And I, I think this whole pandemic situation has meant a lot of different things to a lot of people. But the one thing that it's really right. showed me is that I was not as self-sufficient as I thought I was. And that didn't really become a realization until I realized that I had to wake up at seven, more, at seven in the morning to go to my local Target to get in line for toilet paper and to make sure they had ground beef. And that completely freaks me out. And I'm seeing that with a lot of other people. Like I've got enough, you know, guns and bottled water to, you know, last me a, a long while. But even just, you know, looking looking at my food, that was freaking me out. And then we, you know, there was a big scare about whether or not stores were going to start running out of chicken and certain places were going to start running out of beef. And then I realized I really know nothing about hunting. And that is the one thing that some of my friends, more so down south and like Culpepper, Loudon, they don't have to worry about that. Because while I'm in line at like BJ's trying to make sure that the butcher doesn't run out of stuff by the time I get there, like I've got I've got friends of mine that are posting photos of like venison steak, venison jerky. I, I've never tried venison in my life, but suddenly I'm looking at that and I'm like, that looks pretty freaking good. And then I realized if I'm freaking out, about not being able to do that. There has to be a large number of people who have basically been domesticated into this idea of you'll never need to hunt to actually feed yourself. And now I'm looking around and I'm like, shoot, I really wish I knew how to hunt. So that way I could actually feed myself. <laughs> You're not alone in possessing that fear of lacking self-sufficiency. And even as someone who has started to do hunting in the last few years, I feel that same shortcoming too, because this past season, I didn't really get anything. I did harvest a hog, but the hog dolted, uh, bolted off and got lost. And my client uh, in Georgia retrieved its skull. So I, I would have been able to enjoy some hog meat had I found it. But unfortunately, yeah, I wasn't as successful as I'd like to have been this past hunting season. But no, certainly the news of the chicken shortages and the beef shortages. And I don't know if you heard in uh, the Delmarva region in Maryland, Delaware, they, that's where it was largely concentrated in our region and how the fears arose. But no, when you, when you see this news, it is a cause for concern. And, and it's a concern not only shared by you and me, but countless Americans across the country. And this is extremely important for your listeners, I think, to, to note, is that a lot of people have recognized this too. And I wrote about this at I wrote about this at Town Hall actually last week 
about why more people are actually do, do me a fa- do me a favor after the show shoot me all the articles you bring up and i'll go ahead yes, and put them in the show notes absolutely happy to do so uh, but i wrote about how people are not embracing the end of meat as that new york times town or new york times column was suggesting by jonathan saffron for and he's a great novelist i love everything is illuminated but he couldn't be more wrong about meat and yes, there is some concern about factory farming and, and all that. And actually a good way to remedy that is to get fish and game meat that you harvest on your own. There's no pesticides. It's a lot more ethical to harvest both of those types of protein than it is, let's say, to, to source it from a farm. And, and that isn't to say every farm is bad and engages in bad practices. There are many farms that are employing ethical practices. But if you're concerned that you can't get organic beef, you can't get organic chicken or more humane grown protein sources. Hunting and fishing is a good alternative. And I noted that in my column as well at Town Hall. And I talked to some experts across the industry, some wild game chefs. I spoke to a wildlife agency representative. And this has been starting to percolate across the country. More people were buying turkey hunting licenses. More people, even beyond buying hunting licenses, were buying fishing licenses in historic levels. I've never seen that in my five years of covering conservation and the outdoor beat. I've never seen, especially under a pandemic and in an extreme instance like this, more people choosing to go fishing and hunting because uh, fishing has seen an incline, in, excuse me, an increase in participation, but hunting has actually seen a diminished participation rate over the years because people are aging out. Uh, Many people recognize or see that there are too many barriers to entry. And the industry was like, how can we wrestle with these challenges? So across the outdoor industry, I think they're having short-term celebrations of this in the mix of how to remedy the, the problems that have been existing for the last few years. So it's a little glimmer of hope for these two industries, very vibrant industries that play a big role in this country. And uh, more people, like I said, as a result, in Minnesota, in Pennsylvania, in Indiana, and even I would think in Virginia, I haven't spoken to anyone in Virginia or Maryland yet as to the increase in rate of hunting and fishing license increases yet, but I suspect throughout most of the country in states that did not shut off fishing and hunting opportunities, they saw uh, some really short-term gains in participation, and we're going to probably see an increase in people getting into the field, especially this fall. And I think it should be important for your listeners to note that most of hunting seasons across the country have finished unless you go predator hunting or trapping, depending upon your state and locality. But fishing opportunities will certainly be plentiful. And I definitely recommend uh, fish as a good protein source, especially saltwater species here in the mid-Atlantic, especially if you're looking for species of fish to consume if you want to incorporate that into your diet and you can't wait to get game meat. Uh, You can fish for trout if the trout stockings are still going on. I think they discontinued much of trout stocking or they didn't make the stockings available. Uh, But I want to put up uh, accurate information of that. But uh, yeah, you you can certainly get trout if it's available. You can get some saltwater species, especially if you go offshore or deep sea fishing. Mahi-mahi is delicious. Ahi tuna. Uh, Blue tuna is really good. Uh, So if you're looking through things to do in the short term, supporting fishing charter businesses, which were just reopened in Virginia, would be a really good thing to do if you support private enterprise and you want to also 
get your fish on and get some protein. That's a good way to do it. And even in freshwater opportunities, you can also get catfish if you like eating it. I don't recommend eating it 50 miles. I am, I am not a catfish miles. fan. You could fry it. You could do whatever. I'm not touching that. And, and I mean, that's I the thing. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the thing that I, for, for me, like I've been eating more fish recently, not mm-hmm. because I like it. I actually hate fish. I, I like, I like shrimp. I like crab. I like lobster. I don't like fish, but recently I've been like, okay, eat what's available, eat what's affordable. So I've been kind of doing that. And I mean, with this increase in fishing, particularly because we're, we're in a good season for it. Do you think mm-hmm. a lot of people are doing this just because they need an excuse to get out of the house? And that's one of the few things that many of the states are still allowing people to do, actually go on their boat and actually go go fish for a little bit? Or do you think it's really because they're also looking at the facts that I, you know, I myself realize that if let's say my local store stopped stocking up on meat, I'm going meatless because I just don't have the option right now. Yeah, I think that that's a twofold reason explaining why people are. I mean, it, it's perfect conditions. People would have gone fishing, whether or not to just get out on the water or to potentially put in take or to, to keep their catches. A lot of people practice catch and release. And I, I've heard from people that one of the wild game chefs I spoke to said a lot of people who are just strictly catch and release have now said, you know, maybe I'm going to keep some of my catches now that these meat shortages may be on the horizon. I'm, I'm a practitioner of both when I go fishing, depending upon the conditions, if there's a creel limit, if the season is shortened, if certain species are unavailable. Striper bass are actually really good eating, but because of some shortages, uh, the state governments of Virginia, I think Maryland may weigh a catch limit, but I think in Virginia, there's like a one or two fish possession limit now. And it used to be as in I think, you can uh, only take home like one or two fish. Take home one mean? or two fish. I have yeah. Okay. I think you're you're only allowed to catch one striper bass per person in Virginia. Uh and I, I can check the rules, but I remember they limited it to one per person per boat uh in that. But if I'm incorrect, I'm gonna correct the record later. Um, uh, there, but I, I remember they limited it. Yeah, I'm I'm completely ignorant about this. So if I ask a stupid yeah. question, bear with me. Do they do they limit the amount that you're allowed to take home because they want to conserve the species, or is it for another yes. reason? Yes. Most of the time, it is rooted in that if a species has been depleted, they're going to place a catch limit on things. So, like in Florida, I don't know if your listeners are aware of some of the environmental conditions that have plagued that region. And actually, this has happened in Virginia and uh, the Chesapeake Bay region too. Is was the onset of algae bloom, algae blooms, and because of the red tide in Florida, a lot of species had died, millions in the millions. Oh, that stuff and is disgusting. Yes, have you, yeah, have you and seen it, that it, up front. Yes, yeah, I I was in Florida a year or two ago when the red tide hit the East Coast, which rarely happens. It's mostly concentrated on the West Coast of Florida, and I actually felt you can feel it in the air because it's so palpable. It, it's, uh, it's really, really hard bad to breathe. allergies. That's, yeah, that's it's it, even if you have a great immune system, if your respiratory system is healthy, and I consider myself healthy, I've never had really any breathing problems. I felt that <laughs> in Palm Beach when the red tide had percolated over there, and it, it's pretty bad. So, 
millions, hundreds of thousands of millions of fish and aquatic life died as a result of this because it's very toxic for aquatic species. And I learned that the Chesapeake Bay region similarly had toxic algae as well a few decades ago. And when conditions like that happen, uh, certain resources councils, the wildlife agencies have to put a catch limit. It's not because the government is enacting tyranny. I think the only instance where government can be trusted most of the time, especially state governments, is when they manage public resources like fish and, fish and wild game. And I say this as someone who is limited government for private solutions, for environmental solutions and management. And whenever the federal government shouldn't be managing things, it could be brought back to the states and states should manage certain things where government cannot, federal government cannot. And anytime you do an activity, even on private land too, you have to have a hunting and fishing license. And this is an excise tax, taxes that are applied to sporting goods and services. And it's not like an income tax or the death tax. And you're actually pumping back money into these resources. So you're not simply engaging in like a tragedy of the common situation where you're fishing, you're not paying into it and you reap the benefits while others are paying into the system that funds replenishing of certain fish species like a trout stocking program or management of certain game species. So when you're going into these activities and I hope people do buy licenses because poaching is bad and anytime there's poaching, it leads to further restrictions. So people I don't think it's the purse of government really needing to put to clamp down opportunities to fish. But if people don't engage in stewardship and practice conservation and don't take or take more than their lot, then the government is going to come in and put in these restrictions. So if people can be self-sufficient and act on their own self-interest to not take more than their lot, to not abuse their privileges in this instant, I think the government then won't come in and put in sweeping measures that could ultimately limit opportunities to go fishing and hunting in the future. But yeah, it's it's a system um, and people going into it wanting to go hunt in the fall, especially. I definitely recommend taking the hunter's education course online. You can do it for free and you only pay after you pass. It's like 23 bucks, $27, but you can learn how to hunt online. And I also recommend time in the field as well. But anytime you go fishing and hunting, it's important to note, buy a fishing or hunting license because those go directly back towards conservation. And anytime you purchase guns and ammunition, primarily much of that, uh, the excise taxes collected on that go back to hunter's education courses, to habitat and wildlife restoration. So anytime you buy a gun or ammunition, you're doing your part to conservation, although you can supplement that with engaging in projects and being engaged in, in conservation efforts. But that's why I often argue that gun control efforts will actually hurt conservation funding. So that's something to think about. Uh, those different that, that's, that I just that's like a double-edged sword right there. Yeah. Yeah. I and even that. so, yes, yes. I can't approximate the exact percentage, but I heard it's over 50% that comes largely from guns and ammunition. So people have to be careful advocating for gun control. And I'm not saying this as someone who is a gun toting, no compromise, don't believe in gun control policy person. I fully hold on to those beliefs and I don't think gun control policies will stop crime or mitigate them in the future. But even from a holistic objective view, people, especially sources like the Washington Post have recognized if we have fewer hunters, species are going to go extinct, and especially through the collection of excise taxes placed on guns and ammunition. So that's a lot of things to figure out. 
So more people, as they start to partake in these activities, they're not only wanting to be self-sufficient because they don't want to have to submit to shortages or have to go meatless. They want to take means into their own control to go fishing and hunting within obviously the confines of the law or permitted. And I would say most state wildlife agencies are pretty generous with what they allot. If you decide to go deer hunting in Virginia, you can get maybe four deer across the seasons that we have. We have archery starting in September and then it's muzzleloader rifle season that adds on in October and November respectively. And then archery can go on until the end of March most of the time. So you can, without buying additional like licenses to purchase additional doe tags or antlerless tags, you can actually get a lot uh, within that in Virginia. Some other states are not as generous, but I would say within the structure and framework that has been established for conservation in this country through the licensing system, we get to actually harvest a lot uh, within the confines of the law because it's largely determined on the population of species. So Virginia, we have an overabundance of deer. So the wildlife agency wants people to cull the numbers, cull the herd. Same with black bears. I think you're allowed uh, one bear per season. You can hunt bears? You, you can hunt bears, That's yeah. That's a legitimate I think, question. I did not know. That. Like I know yes, in some places like Alaska, Virginia. you could do that. It's, it, Absolutely. It's, so, it, it's, it's so crazy to hear that. I'm, I'm really hunter hunting ignorant. And I'm, I'm at the point now, I, I don't genuinely think we're going to go into like a post-apocalyptic you know, prepper scenario where I'm going to have to start hunting like this weekend. I know that eventually things are going to start to normalize. We're already seeing some of that mm -hmm. now, but if there yes. was ever a point in my life where it's like, okay, you identified, you don't have the skill. Now it's the time to fix that. So that way, if things happen, you can be all right. I think now is that time. So I'm starting to look at, you know, opportunities, start learning how to hunt, how to fish, um, you know, hopefully when things really start opening back up. The, the one thing yeah. that does kind of, you know, freak me out a little bit. And I mean, I, I believe, you know, if I, I, this is not a criticism of hunters, but like the bear thing that here's here's where I've never felt comfortable with certain game hunting. Like my, I, I grew up in Arizona for a while and it used to be, you know, be, because there's mo most, well, most of everything in Arizona will kill you, but um, <laughs> almost everything that can't kill you, if you kill it, you usually want to eat it. We usually yes. don't have a lot of trophy hunting down there just because of the species that are around. But I, I remember growing up, I had this uh, teacher her husband and her son were basically paying this guy in Alaska to go track a bear cub for like a year. And then when the cub was finally a full grown adult bear and you could legally hunt it, what they basically did was they flew to Alaska. The tracker basically took them to where this bear was. The, the husband and his son shot the bear. They took a photo with it. Then they flew back to Virginia and the guy skinned it and sent it back. Now, do I have some type of eco love for bears? No, I'm not. I'm not a big environmentalist, but I often don't understand why certain people are just going out of their way just to kill animals, just to go ahead and make them trophy pieces. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm not saying that's unlawful. I'm just saying I don't get that extra drive to do that type of thing. Well, I think a lot of bear hunters from those I've interviewed myself, and I haven't taken a bear yet, but black bear especially is actually really good eating. I had a sampling of it in Georgia 
for a fly fishing lodge client that I have, and he prepared how, it really well. It? it tasted like a beef stew. It was really? actually really good. Oh yeah. I mean, I believe that if you go hunting with the exception of if you have to manage certain species, you should be willing to eat it or at least give it to people to eat it. If it's taken legally and ethically and bear hunting is really controversial. I actually covered, uh, let's say the grizzly bear situation out in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, which I won an award for, for my original reporting there last year. And I even like to tackle these type of more controversial type of huntings, hunting uh, methods, because in that region, the, and I'll, I'll make this as simple as possible for your listeners, because it's, if you're just learning about, you, you, you got to break it down. Bows, yeah. You got to break, I it, gotta down break it down for me. Oh, I totally will. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. I'll put it into layman's terms. So in terms of management, so people don't really get mad at deer hunters or duck hunting, but they, they will get mad at any type of hunting regardless, whether it's a small game species or a larger game species. But let's say in the instance of a grizzly bear in this region out West, the bear population there has reached their carrying capacity. There are about 700 bears. And according to determination from the Fish and Wildlife Service, in that region, that population number statistic means that the bear population there, specifically there, doesn't mean grizzly bears in other states perhaps or other regions, but in that singled out region, they determined that the population is healthy and that there should be some management systems in place and that that particular bear should be delisted, therefore not overseen by the federal government per se, but managed more thoroughly by the state. So Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho, and in this instance. So uh, certain environmental groups have sued these states and the Fish and Wildlife Service to forbid this type of management to happen. So if you, let's say, manage a grizzly bear, it's usually done very in a really highly regulated fashion. So in Wyoming, for instance, they had a stipulation for a managed bear hunt, which got shot down by this judge in Montana. So there's no grizzly bear hunting that can take place, despite the fact that the population has met certain metrics where the states can oversee management of the bear, kind of like a 10th Amendment principle, where okay. the federal government realizes that, okay, uh, we're still going to manage this because they still issue out conservation funding to the countries or to the states, excuse me, the 50 states. But they're going to say, we believe that states are better equipped to manage particular strains of bears or particular strains of deer or animals or animals that were previously endangered or threatened, but now they're no longer such. And some people were hunting grizzly bears when it was allowed for management purposes. I don't know. I think people do eat grizzly bear if they have to. Um, you shouldn't let it go to wanton waste if you do harvest it I've in a heard legal and ethical fashion. Strange stuff. Like I've eaten alligator. Yeah. I've eaten kangaroo. Alligator's I, good. Alligator is good. It tastes like chicken. And I'm not saying that yes. jokingly. Like it genuinely tastes like chicken. It's very good. Yeah. And uh, so for that, like in that particular instance, I see the reason why that type of hunting should be justified. Should you go out and kill bear cubs or do that? I've never heard of anyone do hiring a tracker, which I think could be questionable in that sense to track a cub. And then when it gets to healthy adult like levels, then you kill it. I haven't really heard people doing that. Um, I don't know if that's common. I will yeah, ask some it's been bear like, hunters. It's been like 10 years. So I may have been wrong about yeah. that. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but most of the time bear hunt, and bear experts I've spoken to have said that you don't want to harvest anything beyond it. It has to be highly regulated. And 
back to the hunt, I forgot to mention that, uh, a critical point that in Wyoming, they were going to allow this bear season to happen in September, 2018. And the stipulation was if you hunt two female bears, the cancel will be the, the hunt will be canceled. Excuse me. And it's very challenging from what people have told me to harvest a grizzly bear because they're very aloof. They're very clever. They're very smart. They're not going to be easy to find or track or hunt uh, because they know how to overcome interactions with people they're very clever they can hide they can climb trees they're they're very smart so it's extremely difficult to track and successfully harvest a grizzly bear it's one of the more difficult hunts people tell me that exists uh but um even in wyoming they were saying that if a hunt took place of this like at most if people are successful only 23 bears would have been harvested of the over 700 in that population so it was very scientific based it was rooted in reason it wasn't just willy-nilly, all-out hunting season, shoot every bear. It was rooted in science and based in wildlife management and wildlife biology studies. So everything is strictly controlled. It's rooted in science, and you're not doing it just to, to kill everything in sight. These, these decisions are made not lightly. They're made very seriously, determined by the experts, and to ensure that the population doesn't become in threat, threatened or endangered again. So even with these more controversial so-called trophy hunts, people forget that there's a lot of metrics that go into determining whether or not a season for, let's say, recovered species. I usually have an opinion on a lot of things. Hunting's always been one of those things I really don't. I, I also understand that for a lot of people, it also depends on like where you live. When I lived in Alabama, mm-hmm. everyone was a hunter. Um, when I moved you know, to to Virginia or outside of DC, the, the opinion changed a little bit. And I'm seeing people like myself who, you know, they, they didn't really have a firm stance on how they felt about hunting. Um, but now they're looking at it and now everybody else has an opinion on it. It's either, you know, be, be become a hardcore hunter or why are you hunting? Hunting is bad. Just go to the supermarket. And I feel like sure, it's just one of, they forget that meat doesn't grow in supermarkets. Yeah. And and I mean, you know, I, I have some like, you know, there, there are also varying degrees of hunters too. There are are game hunters. There are hunters that just go ahead and, you know, hunt, hunt to eat what they kill. And, you know, yeah. And and I mean, I have some people who they, they hunt certain animals because they don't like the way that animals are treated in slaughterhouses and stuff. And like, I'm not, Mm -hmm. I'm not ignorant of it. Like I've seen how I've seen how, you know, animals are treated in these mass corporate farms. It's disgusting. So I still eat burgers, despite the fact that I don't like the way the cows are killed. But like, I've made some adjustments. And even when I say it out loud, they don't sound great. Like I like, I, one thing I love about Northern Virginia is that you get a lot of options in terms of your food. I like food that's prepared halal, according to how the Muslims do it. And I always just thought it tasted better. Then I saw how they do it. And I'm like, holy crap, that's, that's pretty hardcore. And now, now I feel kind of weird about it because it's like, oh, now I saw how that's done and it kind of freaks me out. Why do you think so many people, especially in the cities and in the coast, they, they have such an adverse reaction to even considering hunting just as a useful skill? Right. As you know, about 80% of the country lives in metropolises or urban outposts. And I don't know if we're going to see a trend in the reverse with more people possibly considering suburbs, 
But I think as people become more removed from, let's say, rural living or sustenance hunting, they start to adopt these kind of sheltered perspectives on how meat is procured, how it's processed, and they just accept whatever is provided in a grocery store. And I eat most of my meat from the grocery store, and sometimes I feel guilty about it. I wish I could have more organic sources. I ignore it once there, again. But <laughs> right, right. Of course, of course. You're like, you got to eat, you know, what's given in some of these cases. But it's like the cows are already not, dead. You... I can't unkill the cow. <laughs> right, right. I don't feel guilty about eating meat, but you know, you sometimes question: Can I procure meat sources? more ethically and not infused with all these hormones and pesticides or different chemicals that are injected into them to ensure that the longevity when they're placed in grocery stores is more long-term than let's say meat that could potentially like wild game meat, I believe, unless you freeze it, it's not going to be as sustaining as let's say meat that is injected with hormones. And that's why a lot of processed foods tend to last longer is because they're not true and organic. Um, but yeah, I think people are slightly removed from what our forefathers did. And believe it or not, actually, Virginia and Maryland and kind of this greater D.C. metro region, a lot of people go hunting. Uh, it's not as publicly advertised as believed or as common as you would think. But you talk to people even in Alexandria in D.C., a lot of hunters are among us, believe it or not, because this this being the epicenter of the country's founding when people settled here, they started to do these type of activities. They learned from the people they interacted with, with local Indians that were hunter-gatherers. They probably adopted that into their repertoire. And there's fox hunting that was pretty common. So a lot of hunting traditions can be found here. And I would say it's one of the older states where these practices have been in effect with Did, Virginia's over Virginia, 400-year history. Yeah, didn't the Virginia House of Delegates recently try and, like, ban fox hunting? Or was it the way it was being done where you can have these hounds go and hunt the foxes? Yeah, with yeah. Dog hound hunting is pretty controversial. I won't get into that or wade into that so much, but l- let's just say that it is controversial. And I don't really see the need to hunt for deer with dogs, but some people in southwest Virginia do it, and if they do it well and they're not encroaching on people's properties... I say, why not? All types of men, uh, methods are perfectly fine as long as they're done ethically and not to the detriment of other types of hunting. And okay. yeah, it's a pretty controversial subject. And, but yeah, we have, we have different types of hunting here and it goes back to the state's founding. And I think as more people, whether it's through the pandemic or just through different types of efforts. So in the hunting industry, there's a initiative called recruitment retention and reactivation to help bring in new hunters especially millennials like us into the fold especially if they've never done it maybe they do fishing maybe they do shooting sports maybe they partake in hiking or biking or some sort of other outdoor recreational activity but they don't do hook and bullet activities especially the hunting part so there are these different initiatives to even target and focus on suburbs surrounding metropolises like Washington, D.C. or Richmond or Virginia Beach to get people out into hunting. And they create these type of initiatives. They create these field to four programs. They encourage women. They encourage millennials. They target people in more urban settings, minority communities to learn how to fish and hunt. And a lot of the programs for introductory level hunters are often free or at a very minimal cost to learn how to hunt Uh, to learn how to process game meat, how to do these types of different things. A lot of fishing clinics are free 
And there are uh, these type of offerings through Take Me Fishing, which is a project of the Recreational Boating and Fishing Foundation. But for hunting, if you are able to strike a relationship with a landowner, you talk to the wildlife agencies, they can connect you to people. Oftentimes in this area, which is predominantly private land, which is not a bad thing. I actually think new hunters, and I, I fully believe this myself as a still fairly new hunter, I believe starting on private land is a lot easier and less challenging and intimidating than you would on public land because public land is a lot more accessible. People descend to it more. It gets overcrowded. Many people may not employ safe practices. And when you start on private land, you're actually able to have a more tailored experience doing so. And actually one company that does this, and I love advertising this and and talking about this because I have worked with them. I've been in some commercials and I've interviewed this company on a different interview basis across the last several years is if people are looking for free market or private solutions to access, especially public hunting or public fishing access, a company called Outdoor Access Enrichment is a great way to help overcome those challenges to access because Virginia is about 18% public land. Maryland is about 7% public land. So it's predominantly private land hunting and private land opportunities to especially recreate in the hunting fashion. So if you want to access a private property, you don't know landowners, this company offers that. If you sign up, become a member and pay like a $99 fee each year, it's oh, pretty inexpensive. Bad. And yeah. yeah. And then if, if you want to access like prime real estate to go hunting or fishing, especially hunting, you may pay another nominal fee. Like it averages about 24 to 30 bucks. Some properties, if you want to have a hunting lease, may go up to $500 for the season. But even on top of the membership fee, the access fee is really not that bad, considering people will shell out a pretty penny to hire guides do this. So if you want to learn how to hunt, uh, there are a lot of offerings through private means like this. And I really stress that people should look to private means to address environmental problems or access problems. I know libertarians love that. And as a conservatarian, I'm really gung-ho about that. Uh, in also to supplement kind of the conservation efforts and how states and localities can be empowered and when the federal government can be a good steward of the environment uh, by empowering local localities and states to do this too. But I think even private solutions can help encourage more people to go hunting and fishing like outdoor access. And I think there are similar prototypes like that, but that's the most successful program that works in the confines of conservation out there. So we, we have a thing locally. That's a really great program. The founders are really lovely people. They have a great outpost in Richmond and they're really trying to allow people to discover more opportunities, especially novice hunters. And even some of the founders will volunteer to take new hunters to the field after they get their license, after they've gotten some time in the field too. So there are a lot of private means to encourage people to do this too, on top of what state wildlife agencies are doing as well. That's that. That's great to know. And I think that this is one of those topics that whether you're in the city or you're out in the country and you haven't thought about this, this is something that, you know, it is a growing conversation, pandemic or no pandemic. I mean, just in terms of the conservation of species, I'll never forget, like mm-hmm. it was five years ago when everyone got mad at that dentist for shooting the lion. Yes. Um, like yes. if they, if they did like five minutes of homework, they would have understands that that was a, that was a publicly owned, 
uh, wildlife reservation where they allowed hunters. They the hunters obtained a license to to kill that lion. In terms of the conservation mm-hmm. of species, that lion had been going around massively murdering a lot of the other yes. animals there. So they had to yep. take it out. And it's not yes. like they were going and around murdering all the other lions either. They just had to take no. out that one lion because right. it was causing a massive ecological shift. Absolutely. Yeah. People don't understand that with so-called trophy hunting, I like to use the term big game hunting because a lot of people in Africa and around the world, if they partake in the hunting of, let's say, exotic species, a lot of the times it gets labeled trophy hunting. But if you talk to locals in Africa or even in Asia, but I think a a vibrant program is more common in Africa. Asia is a little different of a backyard that's I how a lot really of those, seen anything there i mean that's how a lot of those countries actually make money yes people the, and to understand the africa model of conservation with the even limited highly regulated hunting of big game animals especially the big five which is very controversial but to understand that system a great resource is the property and environment research center they're a free market environmental organization i've talked with them on my podcast i've befriended some of their policy experts and they try to talk about how that type of hunting can be justified and how it actually benefits the local economies in countries in the african continent as well and they offer a lot of private-based solutions free market solutions for how to let's say overcome the challenges of managing species how to balance out private public partnerships how to empower private landowners to engage in conservation practices without encroaching on them, encroaching on the private property rights. So there are a lot of private means to do conservation too, on top of what state wildlife agencies do, what the federal government does. And I will say, I've actually been very surprised by how the Trump administration has tried to really employ a federalist approach to conservation practices because his predecessor was encroaching on private property was limiting opportunities to go or to use, excuse me, lead bullets and tackle on fish and wildlife service land. So Obama, as he was exiting, actually put a ban on lead tackle and lead bullets on national wildlife refuges, which are probably the easiest type of public lands after BLM lands to access to go fishing and hunting. So I would I would actually give the Trump administration high marks for what they're doing. They've hired people who believe in true conservation, who believe that whatever the federal government shouldn't be doing, it should be delegated to the states and localities. So there are some glimmers of encouragement from this administration trying to not take a big government approach to to environmental practices and even conservation practices. So you can even see that in, let's say, the government framework, a lot of decentralization, a lot of deregulation, a lot of uh, giving things back to the states to employ, to do wherever there's confusion as to what the federal government should be doing. And the administration, I think, has really prized like a limited government approach to management. I, I've, I've got to let you go in a minute, but I do have one quick question about no the problem. Obama ruling. I, I, I yes. heard a case that, you know, when it, came, when it comes to uh, lead hooks and, you know, lead-coated ammunition, that that was actually an environmental issue as well as a problem overall, because, you know, if some people don't pick up their casings, for example, the lead poisons the ground. If let's say you shoot an animal and it runs off, it dies from lead poisoning. I mean, it it sounded, and I did not hear the counter argument for that. It it didn't sound like it was that much of a controversial thing. I mean, everyone has a preference. Some people use tungsten lead 
which is deemed to be more safe. I think for duck hunting, I remember reading recently that the type of shells you use are not lead-based anymore because for certain species, it is toxic. Uh, but if you're going fishing and you're using a lead weight, um, I think the level of toxicity is not that problematic. It's debatable. There's a lot of debate over this. Um, and if you're using lead bullets, like for hunting bigger species like deer, that's like the cheapest type of bullets available. And tungsten can be a lot more expensive. A lot of these alternatives can be expensive. And the oh, so it becomes like an accessibility issue because now you're yes. pushing people down who don't have the financial or economic power yes. to go ahead and do that. Yes. I could yeah, see that. Yeah, that's the discrepancy. I mean, whatever people want to use, and if it's legal, I'm all for it. I prefer to use lead bullets and tackle. And whenever I'm trying to, let's say, if I'm targeting certain species, I will try to be careful. And like I said, with duck hunting, you, you aren't supposed to be using shotgun shells that are laced with lead. You're using alternatives just because I think for waterfowl, they've seen some impact from that, and they've just decided to manufacture things. But for bigger game species, most of the common bullets, the 308s, the higher caliber type bullets used for deer hunting, for bear hunting, they're still primarily lead because it's cheaper. And like I said, it's there's no conclusive evidence. A lot of people have different opinions for or against the use of lead bullets. But again, it's cheaper and the environmental impact has been questionable at best with that. So People can take it to their own hands, what they want to use. If they're concerned about lead bullets and they're, they can afford the tungsten or lead alternatives, all power to them. But I don't think you should price people out of participation by imposing greater costs on lead, lead bullets or bullets in general. That, that makes perfect sense. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, Gabrielle, you gave me a ton of homework that I got to go ahead and look up now. <laughs> I'm excited to start getting into this. If people want to go ahead and, and listen to you want to- help. Yeah, if, if you want help to, I will take you out to the field too. If you want to go fishing or hunting, you let me know. I'll, I'll take you up on that once Ralph Northam finally lets people walk out without masks and <laughs> yes. everything. Yes, uh, if yes. If anyone wants to go ahead and check out your podcast, District Conservation, and see all your other work at Town Hall and everything else you do, how could they do so? Absolutely. There are many ways you can connect with me. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Facebook, you can connect with me on my public page at, if you type in the Gabby Hoffman together, you'll find me. I have a blue check mark on Instagram. I'm Gabriella underscore Hoffman on Twitter. I'm Gabby underscore Hoffman of another blue check mark there. I also have a burgeoning YouTube account. If you type in Gabriella Hoffman together, you'll find me there, but I'm going to be posting my articles like I do. I also have a podcast, as you mentioned, District of Conservation. We're on 18 different portals for podcasting performance, but I like to send people over to Apple just because that's a, where most of my listeners hail from. But if you have Overcast, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, listen to wherever you prefer. And uh, we also have a Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram presence for the podcast there. I have brought on some really interesting guests. I most recently had Katie Pavlich on a few episodes ago. I brought my dad on to talk about his hunting journey I try to bring on really interesting people. And while I do try to bring on a conservative perspective to the conservation issue, a limited government, libertarian even perspective, I even uh, just talk about the talking points, what the industry is talking about, what's percolating, what's trending. But I try to offer conservation from a conservative, limited government, even libertarian free market perspective. Not many people do that. A lot of people who podcast in the conservation space tend to not really challenge that. They kind of are like, 
more leaning towards the left, uh, probably more environmentalists. Some may take a more moderate approach, but I'm one of the few that offers a conservative, nuanced, conservative take there. Absolutely. And um, folks, I'm going to have everything she mentioned in the show notes. So go ahead and check all of that out after listening to today's episode. Gabrielle Hoffman, thank you so much for joining the show today. Thank you for having me, my friend. Good to talk to you as always. Absolutely. It's always great to talk to people in the great American lockdown situation. But folks, if if you want to keep this conversation going with me or Gabrielle, go ahead and reach out to us online. Remember, you can find me everywhere and anywhere at Hey Remso. Know that on Parlor, the Parlor app, I'm just Remso. So if you ever see Remso 2 pop up on Parlor, call them a loser. And as always, leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. I'm Remso W. Martinez. You're listening to On the Run. I'll talk to you later. shows and more from the We Are Libertarians network at wearelibertarians.com.